Hey guys, and welcome back to my podcast. Today's episode topic was suggested by one of my Patreon subscribers, Marianne Zoe. And if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong, please correct me because I don't like to be wrong. So anyways, the topic today is to discuss abuse in the hunter-jumper world and other industries since online racing is generally a hot topic when it comes to abuse. And it's the horse industry that I would say is the most targeted for abuse, whereas the other ones very rarely are in headlines outside of the horse world for anything that goes on. So that was Marianne's suggestion was to talk about like bad trainers, like drugging and other practices in those worlds and my opinion on them and like just kind of reflect on the problems in industries that I also am a part of. And she also mentioned talking about dressage as one of the industries. I'm going to touch on that, but since I'm newer to showing dressage, I don't have as much like hands-on experience actually seeing stuff personally at shows. So I can really only reference like some of the big cases that have gotten publicized because I really don't know the ins and outs of like shady training practices that upper level dressage trainers use that I've heard about because like I said I'm not as closely affiliated to that industry and I haven't been involved in it for as long so I'll talk about like roll cur and some of the other common things but I can't realistically like say like I have heard that this is a specific practice like amongst like the coaches I talk to personally that this is a problem that I've heard about numerous trainers using and like also when I do reference those for like the hunter jumper world and other industries it's important to remember like I'm not going to name drop and some of the things I will say will be hearsay like unless someone has actually been charged with something or like gotten in trouble at a show for it by a steward or has video of them doing it in a lot of cases even if you know that it happened from the standpoint of knowing the person's conduct and having the problem documented unless you have like proof of it you can't really claim it happened so I'm it, it'll all just be like like speculation that's the word I'm looking looking for sorry I'm moving um yeah and also if I stop talking and like kind of pause for a second it's because there's like a big moth on my wall and for those of you who don't know I'm really scared of moths so if I trail off it's probably because I'm just checking to make sure it hasn't moved because if it does move I, I just need to know where it is at all times you know where I'm coming from So anyways, um, one of the things that I just want to touch on is like just the whole phenomenon, especially online, of horse people and non-horse people alike targeting the racing industry for abuse and kind of sensationalizing it. One of the main tactics that I see used for this is people will cite the number of horses that I've broken down in a year and be like, this many horses will have died this year and it'll be a number like I don't know like let's say 1200 1200 horses died from racing this year and if you just say the number it can sound big and scary because like obviously 1200 is a lot but the important thing when referencing statistics is to look at what the pool you're referencing the statistics from like how large it is so if there's like millions of horses or like even half a million horses running each year and that many horses break down the statistical percentage of horses that actually die in a race is a lot lower than what people try to make it out to be and that's why they always cite the number instead of citing the percentage because if they said like 1.5 percent it's a lot less scary sounding than like saying 1200 horses or that's not the actual stat that's just one that I picked to reference the whole like the logical fallacy in doing that and they're intentionally trying to mislead people because they want to make it out to be worse than it is and that's one of my main problems with how horse people handle 
like abuse and talking about the goings on in the horse world that are problematic is they're highly likely to reference industries that they're not invested in that they're not a part of because it's easier to blame something that you don't care about and that you're not involved in personally because it holds you completely unaccountable because you're not in the industry and it also doesn't air the dirty laundry out of the industry you're in so I think it's kind of like I don't know like it's their own unique way of deflecting from their own problems and kind of having a cognitive dissonance about what's going on in their own industry they're doing it kind of to save their own feelings and make themselves feel better because it makes them appear like they're woke and that they care about abuse. But really it's kind of a means of deflecting from their own problems. Cause a lot of the people that are the most outspoken about racing, if they do ride and you target the discipline they ride in, they're very quick to make excuses as to why it's not problematic and to keep deflecting to why racing is worse than my discipline. We shouldn't be bringing this up. And that's a huge problem. Like I think people really need to, be able to self-reflect and look at the problems in their own industry because it's far too easy to blame an industry that you're not educated on and that you don't know much about, which honestly, most of the people I have seen being the loudest about being anti-racing, they're not super educated on what's going on and they don't know a lot of the rules and like the practices there. Like they haven't really done their homework to learn much. And that's pretty inexcusable because you shouldn't just decide that you hate something to the point of like calling for a complete ban or referencing that everyone in the industry is an abuser. You shouldn't be that passionately hateful if you're not going to educate yourself and make sure that what you're spouting off is true. So that's, I've, I've spoken about this before. It's obviously one of my biggest issues with how people target the racing industry. And to be honest, it bothers me because I see it happening from a lot of people in the show world and they act like they're completely innocent and they're willing to vilify everyone in the racing industry for the presence of some abuse. But then if you try to hold their discipline to the same, like to the same level and say like, okay, fine. Like you, you compete in show jumping. Like certain people use these ridiculously harsh bits. They have horses who are in pain. There's these trainers that have these shady practices. So that means you're guilty and you're an abuser because you're in the industry. If you do that, they're very quick to get defensive or like block you because that's one of the things that I've brought up to other people. Like, Oh, well you event and like horses have died on course from eventing too. So like, I guess you're an abuser. And then they're like, no, I'm not like, that's so unfair. And it's like, Dude, I'm literally doing exactly what you're doing to people in the racing industry. So, anyways, people love to deflect. Sorry, I bumped my mic. They love to deflect. They don't like to self-reflect. And if more people looked at the problems in their industry and weren't okay with it, it's kind of similar to what I mentioned in my last podcast about, like, if more people were vocally anti-racist, it would make it less comfortable for people to be racist in public because they'd constantly be getting called out on it. And if people in other industries were more likely to call out more subtle forms of abuse or be honest when they witness even extreme forms of abuse and do more about it and kind of rally more instead of trying to bury it in fear of having everyone else in the industry get in trouble, we'd probably see a lot more change. And the thing that bothers me about the other industries like show jumping, like the hunter jumper world and like dressage and eventing is there's more than enough money in these industries to do a better job of recording injuries and other things and just doing more regulations that would help the safety of horses and riders in the future and help protect the welfare of the horses. They have the means to do similar things to what the racing industry has been pushed to do due to the public pressure. 
they have the means to do similar things, maybe not to the same extent because racing is so huge and there's a lot of money in racing, but they do have the means to do something, but there's not the pressure on them to do it. So there's no reason for them to put the money into it to do that. So it's unfortunate because if more people self-reflected and held other people accountable in their own disciplines, then there might be change for the better that we should see. So yeah, it's just kind of, it's it's problematic, the psychology surrounding pointing fingers and not reflecting on your own discipline. So I'm going to start off talking about show jumping, which I compete in. I really like show jumping. It's probably really up there with one of my favorite disciplines along with dressage. It's hard to pick between those two, but I, I really enjoy doing it. I have a good time at shows and it's something that I like and that I train my horses for. But I, I call show jumping the barrel racing of the English world from the standpoint of like the bar for riding and horsemanship is pretty low. And this isn't to say that everyone or even most of the people who goes in to the ring for either one of these disciplines is a bad rider. But since the premise of the discipline is just to make a good time and for in, in jumping cases, it would be not taking rails. And in barrel racing, it would be not knocking over barrels. So basically, you want to go clear with a good time. That's basically the extent of the discipline and how to do well in it. And this means that people, so long as they can stay on, in theory, they could buy very expensive horses that know the job so well that they don't necessarily need to be a super strong rider to go in. And then with these people, you see more shortcuts being taken in training with regards to bidding options and having super harsh bits in the horse's mouth as a means of control because these horses are doing a very high energy, exciting job. So they're more likely to get up and excited when they see the barrels or the jumps and want to go forward and kind of run off. So there's really harsh bits. And part of the reason why these bits are allowed in the ring and exist in the first place is because the regulations for said bits are very, very lacking compared to other industries. So they're similar in the st- from the standpoint of like the riders not being judged on how well they ride the course. And unless you're riding so exceptionally dangerously, generally speaking, you're not going to get kicked out of the arena. And if you have enough money to fund the shows and a trainer that's willing to take you there or just take yourself there, like you're going to be allowed to go. You just need to have the means to do it. So it's there's less of a deterrent to learn how to ride really well or not take shortcuts because if the shortcuts allow you to reap the benefits, even if it's not fair to the horse, you still see results. So there's not really the same incentive to get the horse going like relaxed and properly and in a softer bit, because if you see results and you are able to do what you want and enjoy it, you're more likely to start to justify or completely ignore any signs of pain in your horse or how the equipment you use enacts on your horse because you're seeing the results people will take the horse's anxiety and excitement running at the barrels or the jumps really fast and getting really hot and not wanting to stand still they'll take those behaviors as automatically the horse enjoying the sport they're doing and getting excited when that's not necessarily always the case it can come from anxiety because if they're in really harsh bidding options or they're being kicked with spurs or having harsh hands on them there's an amount of pain associated with that and pain will get them a little jittery. So sometimes those behaviors can be related to pain and, but people generally will write them off as being excitement no matter how they present themselves. So that's why they're similar. And 
this like like I said, this is not to say that everyone in those disciplines buys their way into them or isn't a good rider. Like there's a lot of very phenomenal riders in both, but I'm just saying it is more possible to be able to do that because even when you're comparing it to something like dressage, buying a really nice expensive horse in dressage will definitely help you, but you still need to know how to ask for all of the movements, remember the test and ride it half decently because you're being judged too. So the bar is higher from the standpoint of that. If show jumping and barrel racing had like a flat work test associated with them, there would be more of an incentive to learn how to do it properly and kind of make sure that the rider is riding in a way that will guarantee them the most points from the judge. So yeah, that that's where I see the similarities. And yeah, I, I this is going to end up offending someone no matter what, but I feel like my podcasts generally do that each time. So whatever. But Yeah, so that's one of the problems. And I personally think for show jumping, like I don't know enough about barrel racing, so I was only using it for the comparison in case Western people are watching. But um, (laughs) for show jumping, I think if they added like a flat work portion, even if people only had to do a training level test before their show jumping around, the sheer number of people it would completely screw over for their score would be pretty absurd. So personally, I think that would be a really great way to try to discourage people from using really unfair bits on their horses, because I think that's one of the largest problems in the show ring at show jumping events, is that people will start putting their horse into huge contraptions, even at the lower heights. And for the vast majority of horses, this can be fixed to at least some extent if they just had more of an emphasis on flat work and how to produce a certain level, a certain way of going through training rather than just bullying the horse into it. And regardless of what people say or what their thoughts on bits are, when you're bidding up to harsher bits, the entire purpose of doing so is to make the horse back off of the bit more, not get as fast and not be able to run into and try to escape from the pressure of the bit as much. So that's why soft bits are more likely to have harsh, like harder horses in the bridle if they haven't been trained to soften because it doesn't hurt them if they lean on them or try to run through them in the same way it would as if they're trying to run through like a double twisted wire gag or something. The, the risk is a lot higher in harsh bits to try to run through it because they're created to amplify pressure and as a result, too much pressure will equate to pain. So the way a lot of these rigs are set up, it's intended to create a pain response so that the horse will go, ow, that hurts. I'm going to back off of this bit now. And I'm not saying that in all hands, these bits are always going to cause pain. But even in something like a pelham with like a rubber mouthpiece, the reason why a horse is more likely to yield to the pelham is because it has shanks and a curb chain. And these are created to make the horse less likely to lean into it because if they lean too much, it's more unpleasant. And obviously, if, if the rider rides the horse properly in that bit and gets them to soften, they're not going to be running through it the whole time. And the amount of pressure they may need for that bit isn't necessarily going to be painful. But I would say there's a huge difference between someone using a regular Pelham and someone opting for something like a double twisted wire bit or a like a gag with that mouthpiece because you're getting abrasiveness from the mouthpiece along with all of the leverage that a shank and gag action um, applies. So there's certain bits that, in my opinion, if the rider values the horse and their comfort and cares enough to train the horse, that they're just not excusable to use. And like I said, I'm not anti-Pelham. I think that Pelhams can be a good bit for some horses. And something people also need to take into account is that if you're riding like a 1,500-pound horse versus an 800-pound one, 
the 1500 pound horse with like the long body and a big rolling gait is going to be harder for a rider to ride especially a smaller rider because they just have more momentum and a bigger body so a horse that could go in a snaffle around a big horse won't necessarily be the same as a horse that needs a pelham but i would say that with the vast majority of horses you can usually bit them down however there are times where you do need to bit up but there should be a limit to what extent you can do so like I really don't think that if the show jumping ring cared about welfare I don't think they should let some of the contraptions that they have in there because the lengths of shanks that people are using with one rein on like curb and gag bits is just absurd and they're using one rein so no matter how much pressure you use you're amplifying it with the action of the bit so like even the softest hands pulling back at all would be causing the horse way more pain than if it was in something with a shorter shank or just a regular snaffle bit and then you also have to keep in mind that these horses are running forward and they're getting excited on course and the rider's hands aren't always the softest because they need to check them back but if you're doing that with one rein on a really long shank you can't control how much pressure you're using each time because the shank is there to amplify it. And if you only have one rein, you don't even have the option of using a snaffle rein to get the horse back. And this is something you commonly see in the show jumping ring is the presence of one rein on like a very large bit. And I understand it to a point because like it's hard to ride with two reins when you're doing a lot of other things. I get that, especially when your horse is strong and being silly, but if you can't manage the two reins, then you really need to reduce the how harsh your bit is. Like even with a pelham, I despise it when I see people riding in a pelham with just one rein on the shank part and no rein on the snaffle part of it. That's not how you're supposed to use the bit. And if you're going to use something, I at least use it properly, please. Okay, I'm rambling. But um, yeah, so I think that there needs to be a line drawn for to what extent riders are allowed to bit up because people really should think about the fairness to the horse and I strongly disagree with the statement that the bit is only as harsh as the hands this is something that I used to believe in so I'm sure if people looked far enough back they can see me parroting this view but it's a load of shit because unless you're literally not touching the reins certain bits the action of them you basically do not need to apply any pressure for it to be harsh so unless you have no hands and you're just riding with seat there are certain bits that no matter how soft your hands is, you could you could have hands are you could literally have hands made of play-doh and they would still be harsh in certain bits, even with the tiniest action. And with Western riders, obviously this is different because when you're neck reining, using a curb bit like that with one rein is it doesn't hold the same weight as having a direct contact in the same way English riders do when they're riding with big shanks. So Western riders, you're, you guys are generally fine because you teach your horses to neck rein and they're not responding to direct contact on your curb. And I'm pretty sure the vast majority of Western riders would have an issue with it if they saw a rider riding around with their reins as short as most show jumpers do on a huge curb bit. So, like... People need to make rules in accordance with how the horses are being ridden in the discipline. And I think that adding the flat work test in show jumping would be an excellent way to do that because if they did it with all dressage legal bits and just a basic training level test or first level test, like it wouldn't need to be a hard one. 
it would be very telling to see the sheer number of horses that couldn't do it properly because even at the upper levels, you would see horses running into problems with basic flat work and dressage legal tack because most of the people that would be having these problems probably flat and dressage, I mean, and draw reins at, or big bits, and they're not necessarily going down to snaffles all the time. So you would see lots of people running into issues. And generally speaking, I would say the people running into issues would be the exact same people that are using large bits and taking shortcuts to fill in the holes left from lack of flat work. So adding the flat work test would force these people to address those holes in their training in a way that they're not necessarily forced to do um, in show jumping because there's not really a deterrent from doing that. The equipment rules don't stop you and neither does do the classes themselves. So I would say bidding is one of the biggest issues rule-wise in the show jumping ring. And then I would say it's similar for hunters from the standpoint of you could have like a nice looking snaffle from the outside, but then it could be something like a thin twisted wire or a double twisted wire or something. But the hunter ring does have more rules from the standpoint of like what they would accept in their ring than the show jumping ring does. And the horse has to have a certain way of going to place well so if they're running through the bit and out of control, they're not necessarily, they're not going to place, you know, like that people take the horses that they can't get going softly enough for the hunters and turn them into jumpers. And then they'll just say it's because they're too hot to be a hunter or that their personality is a show jumper. And I'm not saying that that's the only reason people make show jumping horses, but if they can't get the horse quiet enough for the hunter ring and soft enough and to have a certain way of going, they can't show it in that ring. So there's a deterrent from how those classes are judged along with the rules. And obviously there's more of an incentive to drug horses in hunter classes because you want that quiet way of going. So if you can't take the edge off of your horse through training or if they're hot going to shows, there's more of an incentive to try to sedate them to get a nice quiet way of going if you can't train it yourself. So you see problems with drugging in that ring. Not that there's not problems with drugging and show jumping, but people will still use band-aids to try to get the result that allows them to win. And you see the drugging issue in like big time trainers. Like one of the big cases like recently, as in the last like five years or whatever would have been like the Kelly farmer case where her horse tested positive for cocaine. And like, obviously that's very bad. And you saw people defending her and saying like, Oh, like, what if one of the grooms spilt cocaine in the horse's grain dish or something? Like that was literally one of the excuses I heard for people trying to defend her and say that it wasn't intentional. Or like, what if the horse licked cocaine off of something someone that works in the barn did coke off of? And like, my answer to that is, first of all, even if that is true, which it definitely isn't, because that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Even if it is true, why the hell, as a groom, are you doing cocaine anywhere near a horse that you know is going to go in big classes and could be drug tested? Why are you doing coke anywhere near there? <laughs> I've never done coke before, but I would imagine most of the people that are into that on the circuit would be going to the bathrooms not doing it in front of a horse's stall at a rated show so yeah that was one of the excuses i heard and that's a bs excuse and that is a very great example of the lengths people will go to to defend the riders they like in other industries if you saw people doing that in the racing industry they would get crucified so yeah, so that, that's one of the deflection tactics right there. So anyways, the horse tested positive for cocaine and then people would, were saying like, well, why would she test for cocaine 
on purpose because it would make the horse hyper and jittery. That was another excuse. And it's like, first of all, I don't know. You could probably give a horse cocaine, and since it's a it's a stimulant drug, there would be a crashing period after. So in theory, if you doped a horse with cocaine and then did it long enough in advance and waited for the horse to crash, I would assume they would be more tired. I cannot tell you if this is true. I am not a doctor. I am not a toxicologist. I have no idea how these drugs work on horses. But I would say that would be one possibility. The other possibility is that cocaine is a numbing agent. So in theory, again, like I said, I'm not a doctor. In theory, if you put it on the horse's gums, it would probably make them stop mouthing the bit as much because they wouldn't feel it. So if you haven't taught your horse how to soften to the bit or they do not like the bit that's in their mouth, it might help them chew less and thereby get you a better mark. But regardless of why it was used, the fact that it was in the horse's system is what's concerning. And I really don't think it would be possible for the horse to test to the extent that would raise concern if it just like licked trace amounts off of someone's hand or like their nose or whatever like I I don't know I think it would have had to have been given to the horse because to have the amount of cocaine in this in the system of an animal that big it would have to be more than in like again I'm not a doctor I would assume it would have to be more than what a person would need in their system to test for it and raise concern so anyways she got in trouble for that very briefly and um, was, like, banned from showing. And <laughs> one second. Sorry, the moth is walking. So, anyways, Kelly Farmer was given a $5,000 fine and a two-month suspension for this. And, like, personally to me, like, that's not very much to give to someone especially when you're competing at that level and they're riding around on like six figure horses five grand really isn't that much and two months is like a bit of a joke because that's not even like the whole season unless it's like the very end of the season so I think it's important to look at how our horse show organizations for these disciplines have handled like cases of abuse or drugging versus the racing industry and like how frequently they actually pull people for drug tests because the people we see and like view as upper level professionals on the circuit would be comparable to like the top of the top horse racing people and obviously like there's still corruption in horse racing and stuff but you see people getting pulled for drug tests way more often in racing than I have personally ever seen in the show industry and on top of this they tend to get in more trouble when they do get positive tests and they're more likely to have hefty repercussions for it and there's also just a higher risk of being tested in general like for example like I've shown many of rated many of rated shows over the years and I've only gotten pulled for testing once and that was last year so it's not that often that you get like drug tested and like obviously at the higher levels you would be drug tested more but I just find that like the cases that we have seen of abuse or drugging in the horse show world it's tenor it, it tends to be a little bit of a joke to see the repercussions that people face for it um I guess the other example for like this isn't hunter jumper or show jumping the other example that would be good to use is the case of 
Marilyn Little, who is like an event writer, and she uses a lot of the bits that I condemned in that earlier part of this podcast. She uses a lot of disgustingly harsh bits and is pretty hard on her horse's mouth. And she's had like tons of bloody mouths on course at shows. Like, I think it's been six or seven times at this point. Like, it's been lots. And this is just publicly, like, documented times. So if you see someone doing it this often at shows where you would be like, shit, I need to be more careful because, like, there's rules about this that are supposed to get me in trouble, but she conveniently never does. Um, and, yeah, so you'd think at shows you'd be especially careful. So if she's drawing blood that often at such publicly televised shows that are so scrutinized by people you would think that it's probably occurring even more in schooling or that the stuff that she does in schooling would be even more risky because even people who aren't abusive when you're in public with your horses you're careful just because if it sounds like abuse like if your horse steps on your foot and you start cussing them out and getting mad at them if someone overhears that it might sound to them like you're beating your horse so you're less likely to do that publicly at a show than you would be at home even though it's just words to express frustration or pain when something happens to you but if you're an actual abuser and you know that the rules at shows might get you in trouble if you do it publicly, the odds of you escalating to the point in public at a show that you would at home are very, very slim. So if she's had it happen this much at shows, my concern would be that it happens even more and that she's even more rough on her horses behind the scenes. But obviously you can't prove that and there would be way less of a means of having this be found out because these people school in private and if they do have workers there there's a good chance that they would be getting people to sign non-disclosure agreements and other things or even if they don't the fear of being publicly shamed and attacked by such a powerful person is enough to keep a lot of employees and working students in line so it's different from the racing industry from the standpoint of like you're not going to be caught in the same way and you know you can get away a lot with a lot at home and these people know that they have power, so they don't really have the same fear because they know they're more likely to get away with it and not have people say anything because of who they are. And if you just look at the history of like how our horse world reacts to certain things, like for example, George Morris getting like totally screwed when he's found out that he's a pedophile and he's sexually assaulted people and molested kids, the amount of people that were just certain the victims were lying and that like claimed it was complete load of crap just because he hadn't molested them or that he had seemed nice to them. There was tons of people just openly accepting him and saying that it was BS and victim shaming. And without even really knowing the guy, they were just insistent that it couldn't be that just because they like him and he was a good rider and trainer. So you see that level of public shame happening and think about how the victims of what he did would have felt, even the ones who wouldn't have come forward, reading all of that stuff. It was probably horrible. And just knowing that people can react like that to something so severe is enough to keep people from not saying things and trying to just play it off and be like, well, it's not big, a big enough deal and she's going to get away with it anyways. Why would I say anything? And I think this holds true for a lot of trainers in the horse world because People are afraid to speak out because if there's power and there's not a strict regulatory board that will protect you and is likely to actually have justice come out of it, what's the point in saying anything? And this is exactly why people need to address this more and start talking about all of the problems in the industry and how people get away with things. 
So anyways, in my opinion, Marilyn Little was largely just not held accountable for anything. Like she lost some sponsors, but I think that they only dropped her because of the public outcry. Like she's really only being held accountable by people online. And that's kind of scary because it just reinforces the fact that what she's doing is okay. And it allows her to kind of just brush it off. And like, she, she made a post apologizing and saying that it was like an accident and basically didn't accept any accountability, despite the fact that this is not a one-time occurrence. If it was a one-time occurrence or even like two times over the space of years, yeah, I get it. But like having this happen that many times at a show shows that you need to change your way of riding and you should change your equipment. But it doesn't really seem like she's learned much from it. And to me, any apologies or addressing of the issue from her have come off as very hollow. Like, I think it's more that they feel obligated to because of the pressure they're getting from people online rather than actually being concerned about what they're doing. And you can see this from, like, even the last time we saw her at Rolex, her groom had a red towel to wipe the horse's mouth with after she pulled it up. And again, I can't claim the horse's mouth is bleeding because I didn't see any footage that clearly made it so. But carrying a red towel as a groom towel and after a horse comes off of that strenuous of an activity, your first thing that you do is wipe the mouth. That is majorly suspicious and that seems planned to me. So it seems like they know that what's going on and they're making efforts to hide it and cover it up rather than address why it's happening and I really don't like that and it definitely doesn't just speak for her because you don't need to draw blood to be unfair to your horse you know like there's a lot of bidding setups and just ways that professionals ride and school their horses that aren't fair to them and just because there's not like blood or cause of trauma they kind of get away with it and it's rather sad like I don't know. Like, I don't think that it should have to be so blatantly, obviously abuse, like someone beating the crap out of their horse or causing like external like injury that people can see. It shouldn't take that for people to be concerned. And like, I'm going to get so much hate for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyways. We're going to circle back to show jumping because I want to talk about equine behavior and just like watching how horses go around at shows and how people are willing to accept it and I don't know just write it off and this is a horse that everyone likes and a rider that people largely like and appreciate and I I I accept you for that you you are entitled to your own opinion and I'm not saying that this rider is a bad rider or a terrible person I'm just saying that equine behavior doesn't lie and like horses aren't like people where they just do things just for shits and just like because they want to and they're just being silly and quirky and stuff like they don't there's certain behaviors of horses that are very much tied to like discomfort or something and I don't think that we can necessarily ignore it because (laughs) it's just it's not fair to the horse. Like we should address behaviors that horses show, even if it's from someone that we like. And this isn't something that's uncommon in like any ring, really. Like you see horses with pinned flat ears, like wringing their tails and just all in all looking uncomfortable and not happy. And there's and you and like equine pain face. If you know what to look for for equine pain face, there's just certain tells when horses are uncomfortable that 
you can look at and be like, okay, like this horse is expressing signs of discomfort or irritation or whatever it may be. And we see this in ringing tails, pinned ears, tight nostrils, flat eyes, like backing off, kicking out, so on and so forth. And these behaviors aren't necessarily always bad ones and they're not necessarily always going to be directly related to that. So it's important to look at the whole situation. However, people write off a lot of these pain behaviors as just being quirks. And you'll see this even with like when people are tacking up their horses and their horse gets grumpy and like bites or pins its ears and kicks out. They'll be like, oh, like she's just a mare. She's being quirky. But it's no, the horse is either expressing a behavior of current pain or something that they've learned from previous pain and you're ignoring it because you like the horse and because you don't want to come to terms with the fact that perhaps you're hurting the horse. And the same can be said about professionals. I've seen horses with pin flat ears just snaking their heads when you walk past their stalls at shows and they'll be owned by really popular riders that people love. But the horses are clearly stressed and unhappy in their stalls and there's no way around that because they're aggressive and they're just cranky or they'll be standing with their heads against the wall depressed. You walk through lots of show barns and horses will have all sorts of bad behaviors and signs of like stress or depression and people will just say oh like that's just their quirk haha and they won't they don't address the fact that it's related to like the lack of socialization or the fact that they're stalled all the time but anyways the horse and rider pair that I wanted to talk about was McLean Ward and Rothschild who is no longer showing and if you go through and look at like any of his photos in most of the photos that there are of him his ears are pinned flat back and he was like known for like wringing his tail and kicking out a lot and people just said it was quirky and that he loved his job and whatnot. And obviously I don't know the horse, but the signs and like the consistency of them, I think would be something more than that. Horses don't just learn these behaviors that they use to exemplify discomfort or dislike or anger, frustration. They don't just start doing them out of the blue. So either he picked up those behaviors from some other reason related unrelated to McLean Ward riding him at some other point in his life, or he actually was experiencing some level of discomfort or something in the ring when he was being like that. And there are videos and photos of him where he looks happy and as a clam and going around nicely but there are also lots where his ears are pinned flat backwards and he's wringing his tail and I'm not saying that like bucking is always pain related or that tail wringing is always going to be related to pain in every single case because some horses do just buck from exuberance but when you couple the bucking with pinned flat ears and wringing tail generally speaking it's not a pleasant behavior that the horse is experiencing and just trying to express exuberance so that's one that I noticed and a lot of people wrote off his behavior as quirks and there's also other horses like this where they'll do things that are clearly stress behaviors or pain behaviors and people will be like oh like this rider's so good to their horses they're all happy and well cared for they are so expensive and like they'll just justify it based off of who the person is and like even with Marilyn Little to some extent people did she's getting called out more because it's happened publicly so often but there's still people who will be like have you ridden at that level why are you judging and that's like one of the most common deflection terms you see in like the horse show world and it's like okay have any of you galloped a racehorse no because you'd get run off on because you can't ride them but you guys all still run your mouths about racehorses despite not knowing anything about them yet you're saying that people who are educated on show jumping and know about equine behavior aren't allowed to criticize professionals and their care and wealth like how they care about their horses welfare of their horses 
you're you're saying you can't criticize that when you're literally just talking about whether or not what they're doing is fair to the horse if you've not ridden at that level that's the stupidest thing ever they can be a good rider and they can pilot a horse around a course well but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily educated on equine behavior or whether or not what they're doing is fair to the horse they just know that it provides results and results don't necessarily mean something is ethical they're just results you can get results in training with all well-being unfair to the animal and causing them distress may it be in their regular training or the care and maintenance of them it doesn't matter you could still get results and the horses can be improperly cared for you can have very shiny beautiful show jumpers and race horses alike that have terrible stall vices and are very stressed from being stalled and just because they're shiny and healthy and fed doesn't mean that it's fair to them to be cooped up and isolated for their whole life and i don't agree with how much race horses are stalled at a lot of tracks however I will say the attitude towards turnout in racing is much different than the horse show world with expensive horses in like show jumping, like dressage and other disciplines. You're more likely to see people justify not turning them out and isolating them from other horses because of their price tag or because of where they compete. And race horses, generally speaking, will grow up in in herds as babies and get turned out in fields in the off season. So there's a different attitude towards it because people aren't paranoid about letting their horse be a horse in the same way that I see it in show jumping. And the other thing is, even for those who are, the horse isn't going to be in the racing industry for as long as the typical show jumper or dressage horse is. So they're subjected to that level of treatment for their entire career, which could span decades. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a type of torture that these horses have to cope with for their whole lives. And then because of doing so, they get stressed when they are put out and then people will use that as a justification to not turn them out anymore, which is stupid because it's like, yeah, like even me as a person who has a way higher capacity to reason and understand things than a horse does, if you locked me in a bathroom with no windows and no access to the outside world by myself 24 hours a day for five years and then just said, okay, Shelby, here you go. Go out into the public. Here's a busy mall with lots of space. You can now meet and interact with people and do things. You would be anxious because you've grown used to the exact opposite of that. You would be stressed. It doesn't mean that you don't ever want to go out there and start to become a normal person. And it doesn't mean that wouldn't be what's best for you. It means that you need to be slowly acclimated to it and you need therapy and training. And you see this way too often in the show world where people will say like, oh, he doesn't like turnout because he runs around and gets stressed or he paces. And it's like, no, Helen, you made him not like turnout because or someone before you did because they didn't allow him to be a horse. And now he has stress behaviors. He hates turnout in the same way he hated jumping when he was over jumping jumps, stopping at them or running around them. He hates turnout in the same way he hated going into a frame when he first started training him, but that didn't stop you from continuing to push him to do what you want. So that's one of the other common welfare issues I see in the show world is that people are totally happy as a clam to fix problematic behaviors under saddle because riding benefits them and their personal enjoyment but then as soon as there's a problem related to the horse's everyday care and maintenance and the horse's life outside of it revolving around their rider they're like oh no he doesn't like it there's no point we're just gonna keep doing this because he's calm in his stall even though stalling 24 7 immensely increases the colic rate and has proven psychological and other physical issues to horses who are herd animals meant to walk many many kilometers a day 
Yeah, that makes sense because we should put more work into having horses for our own enjoyment and our use of them than we do for their personal enjoyment and comfort in their day-to-day lives. It's the stupidest thing ever. And honestly, that is probably one of the single most selfish things I've seen people do in the horse world, in the horse show world. And it drives me right round the bend because how can you even look at that logically and not see the issue? You're saying like when pro- when your horse is scared in the show ring and stressed at their first few shows, you're not like, oh, he doesn't like showing. It's time to stop now. He can just be a pasture pet because he's way calmer and happier out in the field. No, you don't do that because you want to show the horse and you care more about what you do. So put in the same effort for getting them used to turnout and it will happen. The vast majority of horses with those anxiety issues can be rehabbed. I've done lots of them. It's possible. So there's no excuse. You're just an asshole. That's point blank. It's true. If you're going to put more work into fixing problematic behaviors under saddle that stem from stress and get the horse used to working in a way that benefits and conveniences you and your goals with them, you should be putting the same, but also definitely more work (laughs) into what benefits their health and security as a horse and what is fair to them. Because Not having them turned out and not allowing them access to friends and regular behaviors is depriving them of the basic freedoms that are are considered the basic necessities for welfare. So you can't get around that. And if you try to, you're just trying to enable yourself and your own neglect of your horse. And this is something we see all the time in the horse world. People care more about their feelings and denying where they can do better for their horse than they do about their horse's feelings and their horse's health and comfort. And I say this as someone who used to be that very person who stalled my horses too much and would justify based on, oh, he runs around or like, I don't want him to get hurt so I can show him. Oh, he likes his stall. It's nice and cozy. And I would just anthropomorphize all of his behaviors and justify it because it was easier to do that than it was to come to terms with the fact that the reason why he ran around and bolted on me when I, whenever I rode him or whenever I turned him loose was because of the fact that I kept him cooped up in a 12 by 12 box most of the day and then threw him out in a paddock that was the same size eight hours a day and called it a day no I would be insane too because he knows the only time he really gets to stretch his legs and go faster than a few steps of trot is when he's in the arena or under saddle same totally agree he was totally justified in his behaviors and I was an asshole so the only thing you can do in that situation is learn to do better and try to improve what you do for your horse in the future and you're not going to do that by being in denial so People need to start waking up and holding themselves accountable and learning because science doesn't lie and there's nothing in science that says, yeah, your horse is genetically different and biologically different than every other horse on this planet who needs these basic things and is wired this certain way. So yeah, they're not going to have all these problems that we've recorded in studies from being stalled all the time. No, that's not how science works. So I get that in this modern world, it can be hard to find like adequate space for horses but you're never going to start doing better for your horse if you're in denial that it's a problem so even if you only have access to a stall or a small paddock if you're telling yourself that's okay and you don't need to change anything then you're never going to change for the better but if you look at it and you go hey this isn't ideal I need to be out there walking hand grazing my horse and allowing them turnout time in the arena until I can find a better place to keep them then you're just, you're complacent. You need to make the change. And for me personally, I like, I live somewhere where it's possible to access more space, but there are still lots of barns with not very much turnout here. But to me personally, I don't think 
there's really a justification beyond selfishness to say like my horse should put up with this just because I want to have a horse, but I also don't want to move somewhere that's more fair to have a horse type thing. And like, this isn't to say everyone needs like a hundred acre turnout with huge herds of horses or that every horse needs to be in group turnout 24 seven, but at the bare minimum, they should be able to touch other horses and they should have enough space to trot and canter around. And this isn't always doable, but it also shouldn't be accepted in our animal welfare laws because horses should be protected by it. And like, I always use the comparison of if I decided to go and get a border collie and I lived in an apartment building, worked 12 hour days and couldn't get the dog out more than half an hour a day, I couldn't be like, oh, well, I really want this dog breed. So like, I got it and I'm doing my best type thing. People would still think I was being a prick and that I shouldn't have the dog. It shouldn't be any more justifiable for horses. If you cannot properly provide for an animal and care for them and offer the base the basic needs or offer a means of making up for any of the problems in your care then do not get one it's not the animal's job to put up with your neglect of it it's your job as an owner to care for them properly and your job as an owner and the more intelligent person in that relationship to do your best and make make it the best situation possible or let the animal go to someone who can do that for them so I just went off on a tangent about turnout if you can't tell that's one of like my biggest issues in the horse world in general and it's made bigger by like like I said the cognitive dissonance from people in the show world they want to not be the bad guys so they just deny the viability of science and other things that literally prove their thoughts and opinions wrong because it makes them feel better and that's a protective mechanism for themselves and it does nothing for the animals but then these same people are highly critical of other aspects of animal care and other things in the show world so it's also ass backwards i can't stand it but anyways next topic I guess the next thing that you see that's problematic in the horse world is like the justification of first of all like gadgets that force the horse into a specific position before they're probably fit and ready to um and you see this with like draw reins and other things that kind of force the head down and hold them in a frame for the entirety of the ride when the horse isn't fit enough and then it also disallows the horse the same ability to push from behind and learn correct carriage from back to front and this is a way that people try to train faster than they probably should. And I'm not saying that everyone who uses these pieces of equipment does that, but it's a way to try to force the horse's head down and make them look pretty and ignore the fact that like you would be if you were going to the gym for the first time, forcing someone into a stretch before they're ready and just holding them like that isn't going to help them in the long run. It's going to hurt them. And that's essentially what you're doing. If you're trying to force a horse to maintain a static position for the entirety of the ride before they've built, the muscle to do so they'll find ways to compensate for it if you're forcing them to do it but it'll probably affect their way of properly going and it will cause them discomfort so the readiness at which people use these pieces of equipment needs to be considered and people really need to consider why they're doing something and if it's fair to the horse because they're the best way to train isn't necessarily going to be the quickest or the easiest but it's the best for the horse and presumably if you're in an, an animal a sport with other animals you should be in it because you actually like and enjoy the actual animal not just because you want to dominate the animal and do well on the back of the animal like li both literally and figuratively so people need to consider that and they need to be mindful of that. And then also you see this, the same thing, like this is where we'll touch into roll curb briefly, which is highly thought of as like a dressage specific issue, but you see it everywhere. And 
it is problematic and it will cause damage in the long term. Sometimes people overemphasize what constitutes as roll curve and they'll call it any time the horse is behind the vertical or any horse is like a thicker baroque style neck. They'll say that they're like being forced to do roll curve even if they're either slightly behind the vertical or not at all but just have like a shorter thicker neck that makes it look like they're more bunchy than they are you'll see people calling that rolker and it's not rolker is like hyperflexion which is more than just slightly behind the vertical because it's hyperflexing the neck which overflexing the neck and it's thought of as a dressage specific issue as i said but you can see it in literally any discipline it does not discriminate anyone who forces their horse into a position like that for extended periods of time is training with roll curve and you can see it when people are lunging their horses in these training setups like the pessoa system side reins even chambons and like other means of pulling the head down sometimes people will set these way too short and the horse cannot get any reprieve from the pressure of the gadget unless they're behind the vertical and heavily so so in order to get the slack in the reins they have to be heavily behind the vertical if the reins are still tight when they're behind the vertical and then that's where you get roll curve and it's very uncomfortable like think of how uncomfortable it is even just to bend down or crane your neck for an extended period of time imagine doing that to the point where it like affects your vision and you can't get out of it and you're just forced to exercise like that it would be very uncomfortable and I think a lot of the people who end up doing these things are honestly well-intentioned but they're just ignorant and they don't realize why it's a problem or why it's just why it's uncomfortable and when people do point it out they're likely to get defensive and deny the fact that it's a problem but I think we just need to try to think of putting ourselves in the horse's shoes and imagine how we would feel if we weren't fit and someone just forced us to do highly uncomfortable stretches or maintain a position that's uncomfortable even when you are fit for extended periods of time without a break. And we also need to consider like how we want to train our horses because if we're going to train them by forcing them into constant positions and just making it so much right away then it's not going to be something that's pleasant for the horse because they're going to associate it with discomfort at minimum and pain at most and likely stress because of those two things and like I said like these training aids aren't all bad but a lot of them are largely misused and people lack the ability to really think of like building up a top line and muscling a horse up from the perspective of your building fitness you're not gonna even if you slam their head down in the first ride and hold it like that it's not gonna mean they're fit they still need to build all of that correct muscle and that's not gonna happen if you force them and overstretch their neck and do all these things that put a lot of strain on the muscles and make it uncomfortable to be in that position you're just teaching them a whole lot of evasion and bad ways of thinking so that is, I would say, one of the lesser welfare issues because generally speaking, while it'll cause like longer term soundness issues if they're constantly ridden improperly and like hollow in the back or hyperflexed, it is fairly short lived abuse from the standpoint of it's only for like the hours that they're working. So once they're out of that, they're out. And then hopefully if they actually get turned out and have friends, they get to enjoy themselves after. And it's not going to cause the same psychological damage that like beating the crap out of them would, but we'll get into that too, because that's something we see at shows and we justify punishment to the point of abuse very frequently because we say horses are big. What do you expect? Are you just going to let them walk all over me? Because a lot of people think that unless you beat your horse, you're letting them walk all over you, which again is another problematic thought because 
Like, you shouldn't need to beat the crap out of something to get a point across. And if that's the only thing in your toolbox to handle a behavior, then you're not a good trainer. Like, full stop. You suck because you should have more means of doing that. What are you going to do if you ever get a horse that's aggressive and attacks people? Do you think hitting it is going to give it less of an incentive to be aggressive? No. You're going to just either make it, you're going to have to beat it so hard that it's terrified of you, or it's going to win and it's going to kill you. What if you get a horse that's been abused? Beating it isn't going to make it want to come near you and work for you. And for the horses that it does work on, all you're doing is forcing them into learned helplessness and making them scared and calling it training, which is really stupid. So we see it justified a lot. And even you see it from the standpoint of like a horse stops at a fence. Rider pulls out their whip and whacks them after they've come to a full stop. Sometimes whacks them repeatedly. But the fence is too big. The horse isn't going to go over it from a standstill. They have to turn it around and come at it again anyways. So in hitting it after it's stopped, even if you're going to use punishment as a training tactic, what you're telling the horse is like, hey, be scared of this jump because they've already stopped. They don't know what you're disciplining. They've stopped. If you were going to use the whip, the time to do it would have been when they started backing off, but before they stopped. So you're saying, hey, have anxiety at the base of the jump. I'm going to get mad at you. Don't fuck it up next time. And then the horse goes and they just get proceedingly more anxious. Some horses are more honest than others and they might jump the next time and it might work from the standpoint of they stop stopping, but likely it'll increase anxiety levels and make the horse a bit of a nervous wreck. And you're also marking the wrong behavior. So from a basic animal behavioral training perspective, it shows massive ignorance. And then you see people doing stuff like hitting the horse for out of frustration or anything like the horse will bite them when they're doing up the girth because it has ulcers and then they hit it in the face and it's like okay congratulations if you do that repeatedly they might stop biting you but their pain from the discomfort of the saddle is going to end up coming out in another behavior eventually you fix nothing all you've done is address the behavior not the cause of the behavior and this is the problem with punishment is it doesn't allow you to address the cause of the behavior in a lot of cases and this isn't to say everyone who uses like hitting as punishment is a bad person or is taking it too far or is an abuser but it's far too frequently used as a solution when it should be like a last resort type thing not like a frequent training method and we see people hitting horses like shanking them like kicking them with spurs and like thumping on their backs and justifying it because they're saying like oh if I let them get away with this they're a big horse and they could really hurt someone and it's true if you let them get away with it they could but people view it as these behaviors are coming out of malice and they're like intentional and then they're disciplining them as such rather than being like, hey, this is a horse that's just communicating in the only way it knows how. Let's let's look at this objectively and address the behavior step by step and try to figure out why they're doing this. Because a lot of these bad behaviors we discipline are stemming from confusion or anxiety and then you're getting even more mad at the animal and it's causing bigger problems. Like as someone who rides on the racetrack, I get on a lot of really young horses and obviously the track is like a highly busy place with lots of going on. So like the babies are bound to be nervous and silly and honestly like if I like hit them with the whip every time they like propped or spooked, the horses I got on would be like jack in the boxes ready to explode at any time because they would not know why they're being disciplined and they wouldn't know what to do. In the vast majority of cases with horses, you're better off like just sitting there and riding it out and trying to relax and calm them down or figure out why the behavior keeps on presenting itself and addressing that. 
And we see abuse justified in shows because you'll even see like big name trainers whipping their horses, kicking them, pulling really hard on their mouth, seesawing in their very harsh bits. And people will be like, oh, that horse is strong. Have you ever ridden a meter 60 course, Shelby? It means you get to abuse your horse with this really large bit and be super harsh on its mouth because at a meter 60, horses start feeling, stop feeling any pain. Logic. Anyways. They'll try to make you feel stupid for any pointing out any discomfort or abuse from horses by discrediting the level at which you compete. When at the end of the day, behavior is behavior. Anyone can learn about equine behavior. You can become more educated on horse behavior and where their pain receptors are and how certain equipment works. Literally just by learning. You don't need to ride in it or compete at a certain level to understand how it works. And... As it stands, most of the equine behaviorists that we have that are really well-respected strongly discourage using punishment, and they say that it's better to reinforce the good behaviors and ignore the bad ones than it is to heavily discipline the bad ones. And that's science. These are people that have worked with way more horses than you or I and have consulted with lots of other professional behaviorists and conducted studies. None of our personal experiences are relevant because we're not educated, most of us, to the anywhere near the same extent on equine behavior. And a lot of trainers honestly aren't really educated on equine behavior much at all. They just know the very basics. They don't know training theory or learning theory behind horses. And it means that they just they they react how they know from what they've learned. So just because something produces a result doesn't mean it's the best way or fair to the horse. And they're willing to deny science just because it's something that they've always known. And we get this type of like really conservative, anti-change, like traditional type thinking quite a bit in the horse world. And they'll discredit literal professionals that are way more educated than they are because they've shown like a meter 60 or because the rider they like has, has shown that high. And it's the stupidest thing ever like congratulations for showing a meter 60 that doesn't mean you have a doctorate and actually know what you're talking about it just means you can ride the horse and go through the motions it doesn't mean you know how to read behavior or train the most appropriate way from what studies have found and it's sad and it's it's a huge problem in our industry honestly that like we're so anti-change and that people don't respect science to the same extent it leads to a lot of problems and I think that this is why it's so important for disciplines like show jumping, dressage, like all FEI disciplines basically to have more of an injury database and just better resources more comparable to racing to track like what classes are causing the most injuries, what footings are, like if there's a correlation for soundness issues with the equipment the rider uses because Really harsh bidding options are generally an indicator of a lack of flat work, and a lack of flat work usually causes sound soundness problems. So, if they did these studies, they would have a better means of like understanding what the driving factor behind a lot of the common in- injuries in the horse world are. But it would require compliance from trainers to report these injuries and not try to cover them up and not pretend they're not issues. Like honestly, like. In racing, since everything's recorded and so highly publicized, you hear about it very often. You hear about all these problems a lot because they make mainstream news sources. And 
in show jumping, you still see like instances of horses dying from aneurysms on course, but unless it's a really famous rider and horse, it doesn't usually make mainstream news or news at all. And like even with Eric Lamaze and Hickstead, people were way more likely to defend that man and that horse than they would be if the same thing happened in racing. And like, yeah, you hear about the same thing happening in racing more, but there's also way more horses competing at that level yearly than there are at the meter 60 level in show jumping and it's also way easier to track these injuries in training and during competition and racing is just way more popular around the world than the disciplines that we know in the show world so it's different but like people were immediately willing to excuse that but they would condemn the same thing if they're an anti-racing person so anyways that's kind of where you see like the inherent bias and how quick people are to excuse the behavior of upper level professionals if they like them and i again i'm not blaming eric in that situation i'm just saying that people immediately jumped to the defense and it was like you would be the unpopular opinion opinion in the horse world if you took issue with it and you see that happening a lot and they'll justify these behaviors just because they like the person and someone can be a good rider and you can respect them but they shouldn't be untouchable we should not be putting them on a pedestal like this because it makes them feel invincible and it lets them get away with a lot more than they should we need to start being more highly critical of welfare and keeping practices it shouldn't be like such a pleasantly surprising thing when you hear about upper level professionals in like the show jumping and dressage worlds who actually hack their horses, actually have them out and turn out and have them living more regular lives because it's just so common to see these big training programs that have an immense lack of turnout. And that's like the bare minimum. And that I think stuff like that shows that a lot of the professionals that we respect as riders don't aren't necessarily all they're cracked up to be as people who care for their horses. And them being good riders doesn't mean we shouldn't hold them accountable or be critical of like the regular training practices and welfare practices in the horse world or what has become far more common than it should be. If anything, we should hold them to a higher degree of accountability because a lot of the stuff that people let professionals get away with wouldn't fly if it was like a less known professional or like a junior or amateur. I see people being so much more highly critical of every single video non-professional riders post online. And then when you see a professional riding with like bad hands and a big bit with a horse with a gaping mouth, you get shit on if you say anything. Like the popular opinion will shit on you even if they wouldn't excuse the same thing in a less experienced rider, which is ridiculous. And shouldn't be that way. They should be held to a higher degree of accountability straight up. It's really quite sad how skewed we have made how accountable we hold people in this world. And it's completely unacceptable, to be honest. So anyways, this has become rather rambly. And like as it stands, honestly, there is no industry in the horse world that is immune to abuse. There's abuse in all of them. Honestly, at the higher levels, it seems that people have more means to try to take shortcuts and be unfair to their horses and they'll justify it out of greed because if they're making money and things have been working, they'll tell themselves that it's not unfair to the horse and they'll deny it. And obviously, even in people who have horses as pleasure animals, there's varying degrees of abuse. You see abuse in lesson barns to lesson horses with poorly fitted saddles being worked probably more often than they should. They might not be sound. Sometimes trainers drug them. They have to put up with really bad hands in their mouths, on their mouths with their bits. They might be ridden in harsh bits. Some lesson programs just completely 
like dispose of their horses once they're no longer sound for lessons and we'll just give them away for free some of them will send them to auctions and that's at the very base level of people who are just teaching riders to ride and then you have people who have horses just for fun that aren't necessarily educated on the proper care of them and while they may love them they may be doing things that are unfair to them there's truly no place in the animal world that is completely devoid of abuse like people all across the board with all different types of animals whether they use them for competition or just have them as pets there is varying degrees of abuse and people are often unaware of said abuse or neglect and if we're in a world where people think that something shouldn't happen if there's any amount of abuse then we literally can't do anything you can't you probably couldn't have half of the things in your house that you do, probably even more than that. You couldn't go to school. You couldn't do anything because there's abuse in every aspect of the world because people are just corrupt. They become corrupted and they'll justify their behaviors as not being abuse or they might just be ignorant to the fact that it is or they just don't want to admit it to themselves. And this happens everywhere. So for me, I don't think that most disciplines need a complete ban unless there's absolutely no way to run them humanely, which doesn't hold true for most of them. If we made changes and started educating people better on proper care and maintenance of horses and educating them more on equine behavior and just having that welfare component more stressed in horseback riding rather than like brushed off and like have people laugh at you if you're not willing to put your horse in its place by hitting it calling you a pansy making fun of the level you ride at if you ever criticize someone's care or training of their horse and so on and so forth like these are all common detractors people use to sway people away from speaking up and if that's the only response they have and they don't actually have like a way of like saying actually like the bits action won't work like that and this rider seesawing in this bit doesn't cause this horse pain because of this or actually this horse is a robotic horse that doesn't need any attention from other horses and has a different digestive system so being stalled all the time doesn't cause it any harm like it should be you should have a better argument than just trying to criticize someone and make them feel stupid because you're trying to shut them down without having to put any work in yourself to prove your side of things and it's lazy but we see it a lot in the horse world and we're far too quick to brush things off as not being a problem depending on who does them even if we would hold someone else accountable way more if they were less popular or less liked by you or idolized by you as a rider. And it, it it's sad. And there's certain things we can do to reform it. So I would say, like, like I said, for the vast majority of disciplines, there's changes you could make that would vastly improve the welfare of horses even something as simple as like cities starting to set regulations for the amount of space horses should have access to on board in boarding stables it would require boarding barns to completely rearrange how they set up their stables to be more horse friendly and honestly for most places i would say this is doable it might be expensive for them to do now if they have like everything put in place but making laws surrounding this would be an incentive to make sure people build barns where horses can can see and touch each other through the stalls and where they have access to the outdoors and enough space to at least trot around their paddock it could completely change it and even in barns where horses are stalled all the time building open air stalls where horses can see their buddies next door and interact with them and like look out windows and have more enrichment all of that vastly improves their welfare too even without necessarily leaving the stall and like i said i don't support 24 7 stalling of sound horses but 
those are simple changes that could be made if we just started to make people more aware and put more emphasis on educating people about these things. And like with the show disciplines, the bidding regulations for certain classes really wouldn't have to change that much. And if you just added a flat work portion for some classes, that could probably even make the change without changing the bidding regulations. Add a dressage like a dressage style test where they're judged on their flat work and they're not going to get away with the same shortcuts that they can in the show jumping ring. Like there's changes we can make to make the horse world a better place. And I think that that's a lot more doable and it'll be better for the horses than a complete ban. Because if we did a complete ban of all horse sports, we would have a huge amount of wastage of horses and like, hardcore welfare advocates would say that if people loved their horses they would keep them even if they couldn't compete or race them and that may be true but if you get your livelihood from like training show horses or training race horses you can't keep the horses if you lose your job and your means of making an income like even grooms and like show staff and all of those people if they lost their livelihood they couldn't take care of their horses even if they wanted to so this is why i think we need to push for reform and set realistic expectations and slowly push for more and more over the years to make the world a better place for the horses rather than pushing for a complete ban because taking hard extremist lines isn't usually the way to go if you want to incite change it it makes people more defensive it makes people make jokes and kind of downplay abuse even if like some of these extremists have valid points by taking such an extreme line and an extreme stance people don't value your opinion as much and they're more likely to ignore it because they feel threatened by it so if we set more realistic expectations and did a better means of educating people rather than attacking and vilifying everyone in an an industry and calling them abusers then it would be more likely to incite change and this stands for people who don't support horse racing as it is now if they set realistic goals educate themselves and actually make a means of trying to educate people as to why their suggested changes would make a difference, then they would see more change and you would make people less defensive and they would be more open to hearing what you have to say as a result. So it all comes down to us, first of all, be willing to self-reflect on our on ourselves and how we care for our animals, how we are in the horse industry or how our discipline is and the problems that could be changed in that to make it better for the horses, as well as if we are going to criticize someone else in their own industry we need to be more educated and we need to have realistic goals and we need to consider the fallout if you're calling for something as extreme as a complete ban because in the vast majority of cases the fallout from that would be worse for the horses not better so we just need to increase education and push for reform but be realistic about it and that's kind of where my stance is with most things even disciplines that I don't thoroughly enjoy like for most of them if you made some changes it could be better for the horses and for a lot of them they could be made a lot more humane than they are and they wouldn't necessarily be wholly abusive or cause to completely call off so that's kind of my opinion this is a long one and it's rambly and I'm sure some of the stuff that I said would have offended people but at the end of the day I don't think that someone's prestige as like a horse trainer and how many like Olympic golds they've won or like how many Grand Prix they've won I don't think that's an excuse to detract from problems in their care for their horses or yeah just 
the instances of equine behavior that are a little telling in any show ring. Like someone being a good rider and loving their horse doesn't mean they're immune to mistakes. And we've all made them, myself included. And I immensely regret how I handled my Arab and the lack of turnout that he had. And I'm sure as I learn more and as more information comes out in equine sciences, I will continue to adapt my training style and condemn things that I may have previously been okay with. And that's okay. That's growth and learning. And learning and referencing mistakes you've made in the past is always going to be more admirable than ignoring them and pretending you never make made mistakes and being too scared to change your behaviors in fear of being called a hypocrite. I'd rather be a hypocrite who has learned and grown and grown, growed, oh my god, English major who. I'd rather be a hypocrite that has learned and grown as a person than someone who is ignorant and refuses to open their eyes and consider new information, even if it comes from a credible source. And that's how everyone should be. So that's the end of my podcast. I hope that this was a good one. I really enjoyed doing this one. Thank you, Marianne, for the suggestion. And let me know if I pronounced your last name correctly, because I do not like being wrong. For those of you who are wondering, the last name has like what I would assume to be a, a silent letter in front of it. But like, who knows? You know, last names can be pronounced however however people want them to be. So just just let me know. And if I ever mispronounce any of your names or like a word on a podcast, I would immensely appreciate it if you'd message me privately instead of making fun of me and just so that I know to fix it because like my mom's an English teacher and sometimes the words I use I learn from reading them so I've never said them out loud and then I sound really stupid when I say them out loud um so she corrects me a lot and it's good because it stops me from hopefully making an ass of myself in public but you never know so anyways I hope you guys all had a great day and like if anything I talked about in here applies to you Instead of feeling guilty or angry, just start to look at ways you can just slightly improve the situation. It doesn't need to be a, a major bit change, but just work on getting your horse softer in the bits you have and work your way bidding down if you're concerned. If your horse is stalled 24-7, consider going out there more to hand walk them and hand graze them or start looking at other boarding options or even options where you can have your horse go out to pasture for part of the year or something. Just ways you can slightly improve. That's better than nothing. But just just don't beat yourself up and just do your best and make yourself aware and educate yourself. That's honestly the best your animals can ask for you from you. So just do your best and try to always be learning. And thank you for listening and watching my podcast. And don't forget to check out my Instagram. The handle for that is at sign SD, the letters, E-Q-U-U-S, Equus. And I also have YouTube, which is my name, Shelby Dennis, and I have a store on Teespring, which is called Milestone Equestrian. And then I also have my website, which is Milestone Equestrian, except the E for Milestone and the E for Equestrian are shared, one E, not both, dot com. And I have a store on there as well. So thank you so much, guys. Check out my merch and my YouTube and my other stuff if you want to see what else I'm doing around or if you want to help support my business that would be sweet i think some of my merch designs are pretty cool but obviously i'm biased but anyways thank you for watching and i really appreciate all of you